chapter 1 and verses 37 to 39. Um, Jesus was walking past John the Baptist, and, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. <laughs> and, of course, all his disciples are around there going, What does that mean? And a couple of days later, Jesus is walking past again, and he looks up as he sees Jesus, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the disciples heard him speak, and so they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to them, What do you see? You know, what's with you? Hey, guys, what's going on? And their response to him was this, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? Now, having grown up in the Middle East, I understood that. They're not really asking, where's your home? They want to know who your daddy is. They want to know what family you came from, what is the relationship in your family. I want to know where you stay, what impact your family has had on you that our teacher calls you a lamb of God. That's a fascinating thing. So they're looking at that, and he turns around, and he doesn't say, listen, you, you, just don't, you won't understand. He, no, he says, come and see. The invitation in verse 39 is, come and you will see. And they came, therefore, and followed him. And they didn't quit. Because they understood something. As a matter of fact, in one of the next verses, it says that they went and they said, we have found the Messiah. Right at the very beginning of the life of Jesus, the disciples have understood that Jesus is the Son of the living God. And everything that he represents and demonstrates is something that comes directly from his father as they see him they're going to understand the nature and the character of the heavenly father and that was attractive that was attractive they stayed with him i'm going it is our life it's my life (laughs) that's getting pretty personal maybe i ought to say our lives because that's not so personal right if I, if, but if I say, is my life attractive enough that people want to know my Heavenly Father? And that brings me to our text this morning. And so let's take a look at Acts chapter 25 and beginning at verse 13. Now when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice... arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. And while they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, and when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation upon him. And I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. And so after they had assembled here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. 
And when the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion, about a certain dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. And being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until, uh, custody until I send him to Caesar. And Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. And so on the next day, when Agrippa had come together with Bernice amid great pomp and had entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus said, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with us, you behold this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. And since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all here, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write, for it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. <laughs> oh, Lord, I just thank you that, that your word is just so real. I could just sort of see this, this, this play acting out in front of my inner eye and I just see how ludicrous it is. And yet, here you have put the strongest, most powerful men in a situation where they have no answer. Your wisdom, your, your spirit, your ability to do things is amazing. Even when Paul doesn't say a word and even when he doesn't have to defend himself. And I thank you that we have the same ability to put the same hope and faith and trust in the same Heavenly Father. We thank you for that. Amen. Amen. Well, you just heard me say I think it's ludicrous. It, it, it's hilarious. This is the third trial. We're coming up to the fourth trial that Paul has had on the same accounts. Lysias found him not guilty. Felix couldn't find anything with him. He just wanted to do the Jews a favor, so he kept him in jail for two years. And then the, 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 the governors changed, and so Festus comes in, and he tries to solve the problem immediately, and he tries to do the Jews a favor as well, thinking, well, let's just do them a favor because then we, we, you know, we'll keep things sort of uh, quiet around here. And Paul throws a wrench, a monkey wrench into the middle of the whole thing. He says, I appeal to Caesar. You don't have a right to send me to, to my death with these guys because you know I'm innocent. That was, that was last <laughs> week. You know I'm innocent. He just sits there and says, you know I'm innocent. <laughs> and now we have this event where Agrippa, King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, he is, he comes in 
to, he's paying his homage to the Roman governor. He's building relationships. He brings his sister Bernice with him. Bernice's husband had died, and then for a while she was a cohort to a, a famous Roman um, uh, general, and now she's with him, and they are coming in to greet Festus and welcome him to uh, Judea and to give him their support. And he sees a possibility that maybe I can get out of this problem that I'm in. I can't do the Jews a favor anymore. He's appealed to Caesar. I told him he could go to Caesar, but I can't write. There's nothing that I can say about this guy, so what am I going to do? Maybe I can play on their, uh, this king's and his sister's uh, kindness and so forth to find a political solution to this that, because I don't know what to do. This is beyond me. And so <laughs> they, they says, well, I'd like to hear this guy. He said, okay. So he tells him the story in private. And the next day, they have this big thing that shows up, pomp and circumstance. You can imagine the court is filled and everybody comes in. You know, if you saw the coronation of King Charles, you, you can sort of get an idea. This is a big deal, you know. And people are all coming in with whatever fancy clothes they've got to show how important they are. And they're all sitting around. And he stands up, the, the governor stands up in the midst of this and says, King Agrippa, I got a problem. I can't find anything wrong with this guy. <laughs> and so I've agreed to send him to, to Nero, but I can't send him to Nero <laughs> without filling in a reason as to why this guy's a prisoner. <laughs> and it seems absurd to me to just send him along without saying what he's accused of. Now, I, I look at this story and, and I'm sitting there going, God, you've got such a sense of humor in the way that you are able to take people who think of themselves as being powerful and great and uh, important and uh, of high influence and just leave them in, in complete chaos. <laughs> and and I, 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 I got to say, you know, this is, this is fascinating. I mean, Paul doesn't really care what they're doing because of several things, but one in particular is that he knows that, that Jesus personally spoke to him that he was to be a witness in Rome. So if he can get a free ticket, he's, he's happy. And at the same time, he's got the leading men of the city. He's got the king of Judea. He's got uh, his sister Bernice. He's got the, the Roman governor. He's got all these powerful people there. And he, he just has to tell them about Jesus. His whole focus was that when he was saved, that that's what he was supposed to do. And now he's in a position whether he's in jail or not in jail is not the issue because inwardly he's still free. <laughs> and he's there understanding what his calling is and he's fulfilling his calling. And they don't know what to do about it. Well, in the midst of all of this, let me take a look at the two main issues that this text tells me. Now, so far, Paul hasn't said a word. Up until the end of this chapter that I just read, Paul shows up at the end. 
he's brought in, and then the, the governor says, I don't know what to do with this guy. I'm sending him to, to Caesar in Rome, and I don't know what to write, and it seems absurd to me. I mean, I could just see Paul sitting there going, this is, you guys are nuts. I've already had three trials where I've been found innocent, <laughs> and you can't let me go. You are in such a pickle, you guys. You just don't know what's going on. I mean, so on the one hand, they can't find anything wrong that he's done. He, he, he doesn't even have to say a word. He's just standing there. And they, the people who are the leaders of that whole section of the world, <laughs> have to admit that this guy hasn't done anything wrong. The other thing is that when he was alone with King Agrippa and Bernice, and he's telling them this story, he says, the main issue, I mean, this guy is intelligent. This guy is not just some dodo out there trying to uh, impress people. This is an intelligent administrator in Roman government, and he is able to dissect exactly what the accusation is and he knows exactly what the problem is about. And he brings it right down to the main point, and he says the only thing that they can say about him, when they all stood around him and they were accusing him of this and that, and he shouldn't live, and we need to have him condemned, we want him killed, and, and all the religious leaders are around here doing that, he says the issue is that they claim that the dead man called Jesus is the problem because Paul says he's alive. He puts his finger on the very important key issue, and whatever that result is of Paul's faith, that he believes that Jesus is alive, it has made such a dramatic effect on his life that when people look at him, they can't see anything that he's done wrong. Think about that. The power of the resurrection in the life of Paul is that without saying a word, he is demonstrating something about the resurrection to everybody that's there. You see, there is, this is where this verse comes in here. It says here, if Christ, this is something that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith also is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. The resurrection is the key thing, not just the death of Christ where he died for our sins. No, it's his coming alive again where there is a personal relationship with the risen Jesus. That's what changes life. That's what gives us hope. That's what gives us understanding. That's what gives us wisdom. That's what gives us everything that is necessary for godliness and life unto eternity. This fact that Jesus lives. You see, it's, it, it is a powerful thing because when I know that Jesus is alive, I have observed something most significant. I have observed the love of the Father for His Son. 
suddenly I see that the Father in heaven has this amazing, incredible, demanding love for his own son that surpasses anything that you and I could possibly feel or exhibit in this world. You see, he sees his son sacrificing his life for the sinners and the sins of the whole world. He bursts with love for this amazing son who is willing to give his life as a sacrifice for us who are sinners. And pours out his spirit, raises him from the dead, gives him everything, all authority in power in heaven and on earth. He gives to him because of his love that is so immense. And when Jesus sits down on the throne, having received all of that, what does he do? He turns to those who love him and pours out the same spirit. Suddenly, I'm starting to see something about the power of relationship between the heavenly father and those that are his children. And it doesn't just come to affect me in terms of setting me free from my sin and guilt and shame. We'll praise God for that. It's not just there because it gives me a sense of, of knowing that I'm going to spend an eternity with Jesus. I'm going to pass through the judgment and I'm going to spend my life forever in heaven with my Savior. No, I want to tell you something. This is about God's love and the ability of his love to touch us here and now and that his love is something that needs to be seen by the world and it, it takes a powerful transformation from being a sinner who knows only how to sin to being somebody who has been changed into the right living righteousness of God and demonstrates demonstrates the love of God you see Paul is in the middle of his enemies he's in the midst of sinners he's the only one standing in front of all these powerful, powerful people. <laughs> and what do they see? Do they see that he's angry, upset, that he's complaining, that he's trying to degrade them? Is he attacking them? Is he trying to tear them apart? He has a different perspective of the people that he sees in front of himself. He doesn't see the powerful and mighty. He sees sinners that need a Savior. And so he's not afraid to stand up and say, what you need to do is get to know Jesus. And the fact that he's alive, that will save and transform your thinking, your heart attitudes. It'll transform your relationships He'll transform the way that you observe people. You will see sinners in a different light, not as your enemies, but you will see sinners as the objects of God's great love for which he sent his son into the world. It's a whole different perspective. They don't find anything wrong with Paul because he's loving them. <laughs> How do you condemn somebody to death? When all that they've got in their hearts is a heart of love for you. That's powerful. 
That's powerful. I'm taking a look at this, and I'm, uh, he doesn't have to say anything. And th this is fascinating. This, this is, gives you a bit of idea in, in, in terms of the way it is today. Uh, you may remember this because most of us are old enough anyway to know about Watergate and Nixon and, and the whole issue. And Charles Colson came to know Christ in the midst of all this. And, and I read in his book about how he would organize pastors to come and preachers to come and meet with the president. And, and the president who had a foul mouth and everything, when, when, he, when he opened the doors to the Oval Office and these guys came in and out in the lobby, they were saying all the things they were going to bring up and, and say to the president when they got into the Oval Office. But when he stood up behind the desk and he reached over his hand and greeted them, he said they didn't mention a thing. He said he had the meeting out of his hand. They just knew the power of politics. And, <laughs> and then Watergate comes up, and then this is what Colson says after he, he gets saved. He says, I know that the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. <laughs> I thought, I thought that, that gives me an idea of Paul standing in front of all these powerful people that are trying to have another, another case thrown against them. Um, here we go. Those are the two main characteristics. What is the primary ingredient for this kind of a witness that is so powerful? And, and this is something that I think is, as I go through this, I want you just to think about how do we observe and perceive people, whether they are hypocrites, liars, adulterers, fornicators, maybe they're cheats, maybe, maybe they're homosexuals, I don't know. In any, think of anything that you can think of that's, that would pertain to a liar. What is our focus and our attention when we're in the presence of such people? And, and, and believe me, we, we all know folks that are like this. And this is, what, this is what, first of all, what Paul writes in each of these instances. He says, I want you to walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. I want you to walk in love. Let every step that you take not be something that's judgmental, but something that brings about the fragrance of God's sacrifice into their, into their lives. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It was while we were sinners. It was while we were sinners that Christ died for us. If somebody is still in their sin, and they haven't, they haven't met Jesus, then they're doing what their nature tells them to do. <laughs> and what they need is to see someone who will love them in the midst of that whatever the sin is. Now, as to the love of the brothers and sisters, you have no need for anyone to write to you. 
For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. I find that fascinating. Here he writes to the Thessalonians. He says, you have been instructed not by the pastor of your church, not by great men on TV, not by other folks that you've been around. You have been instructed by the Lord himself that the attitude that you need to have in life is to love one another. <laughs> wow. How about this? Be devoted to one another in brotherly love and give preference to one another in honor. Be devoted. Walk in it. Be devoted in it. Give preference to one another in honor. I've, well, I just, I think that when Jan mentioned worship this morning, I, I just, I've been listening to um, a book by C.S. Lewis called uh, Reflections on the Psalms. And the chapter on praise is just absolutely brilliant. And I, I was thinking about that in why do we have to honor God when he's God? Isn't that very selfish of him? And the answer to that, he points out in a fabulous way, and I can't, I can't, I can't either quote the whole chapter, which would be wonderful. <laughs> but he says, you know what happens when we praise is that our hearts and our minds are open to God. As we begin to reflect and praise and speak out, uh, uh, speak out with our own mouths the words that, that honor, exalt, lift up, express the magnitude, the beauty, the wonder, the glory of who the Father is, our hearts are open to the point that he can speak to us. It's not that he's looking for being exalted. He's looking for opportunities to come and infect our lives with his character and his life. And as we begin to dwell on who he is, that it starts to change the way we think about how we do life. And suddenly I start to realize the same thing happens when we begin to honor each other and praise one another and tell each other the things that are good and, and right and, and honest and beautiful in our lives as we encourage one another in that way instead of being critical to one another, something healthy begins to happen within our lives and within the life of the church. It's one of the most beautiful things as we praise one another the same thing happens amongst us that happens when we praise God and God shows up and, and starts to infect our lives with his love. In Colossians, Paul writes, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. Listen, if you've been chosen by God, these are things that you need to put on. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another. That's hard, isn't it? Just being patient and bearing with one another. Forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so must you do also. In addition to all these things, if you don't know what all these things are that he's just listed, then he tells you what it is. Put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. I sit there and look at this incredible activity, and he's standing, he's standing in front of the guy that's going to send them to the place where he's going to write this. 
<laughs> and he is living it right now. Because when he's standing there, he's forgiving them for what they don't know. He's in the process of loving them in this way. This isn't like mushy feelings and getting all excited and your hair standing up on end. No, this, this is the way that love is demonstrated in this way. John puts it this way. He writes, Beloved, let's love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. See, the very focus of this is that loving one another demonstrates that we've come to know God. In other words, if we have come to know the Father, then the character of the Father has influenced and affected our way of life. Because the Father loves us more than we could possibly imagine. He goes on to write, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. Isn't that a beautiful verse? has nothing to do with what we've seen, but here God comes to help us love one another. Jesus said this, I'm giving you a new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. In John 15, he says, this I command you. This is his command. This isn't his suggestion. This isn't good advice. This is a command. This I command you, that you love one another. Brothers and sisters, I, in looking at this particular passage, wrestling with it this last week, trying to understand what was going on, it's what Paul didn't say. In this whole passage, it's not what he said. It's who he was. That is what has impacted me. And those who stood around understood the reason why this man is here is because he believes that Jesus is alive. And his life reflects the love that the Father has, not only for him, but also for all those that he encounters. What an incredible thing. What an amazing thing. And the same spirit that touched Paul and transformed his life is here for each one of us. As we call upon the name of the Lord, we can say, Jesus, I need to get to know you better because as I know you and as I know your love for me, that's how I am going to be loving others the more that I understand the focus of the love that you have in my life, it's going to give me not only the strength to remain righteous and holy and true and just and full of truth. All those things happen because of the resurrection in Jesus living inside of me. But more than that, my life is a living sacrifice, a living testimony that others can read. An open book that will affect their lives because when they encounter me, they won't encounter judgment, but they will encounter the Lord who will judge them if they do not repent. 
And it doesn't mean that I have to get up and preach hellfire and damnation. It means that I have to encounter them knowing that they are lost and need to be saved. And if that's the case, then I've got to be praying, Lord, how can I love them effectively? How can I love them effectively? How is God's love demonstrated through you? When people look at your life, are they going to go through the scriptures like I just did and pick out a whole series of verses and go, wow, that, that, that's, that's what Chris is like. <laughs> that's what Shannon's like. <laughs> that's what Alice is like. I've seen that. that that's Alice. You know, here's Dawn. I see you, Dawn, right here. This, that's who you are. I see that. <laughs> Bobby, you can't escape it because this Bible verse, that describes you. <laughs> Which Bible verses about God's amazing love describe your life? The freedom, the deliverance that God has given you in your life. How is God's love demonstrated in and through each one of us? Heavenly Father, on this Father's Day, we're beginning to look at the ways in which you love Paul and the way that Paul's life influenced and affected every single one. Some just got hardened in their sin, and others, they ended up, they ended up being convicted of their sin. Lord, we desire that our lives would be similar, that when we meet folks, whoever they are, that walk in sin, may our love for you become evident so that their choice becomes clear that either they harden their heart in their sin or they allow you to convict them of their sin and set them free of it. Let each one of us be a living sacrifice for you. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.